In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Television is silly. Dog the bounty hunter is not a dog. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. It's healthy to wear masks. If you're Lucha Libre, anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Hey, Jeremy, I got us a, a great, great guest tonight. Jeff, who's it going to be for tonight on Paratopia? What the hell is that? What? It's my new DJ voice. Everyone's got to have a voice for the radio. Uh, no, you pretty much just sound like a douchebag. No, cut it out. What do you mean? What do you mean? That's you stupid. What are you like doing? That? But that, isn't that what you do when you have a radio show? You sound like that? Well, yeah, but that's not us now. Not you, maybe. You gotta have the real radio voice if you're gonna do that. And we all know who has that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that's like copyright infringement or something. I can't just. Well, do it probably is, yeah. Rob Simone. Um, alright, well, I guess I'll just keep working on stuff until we have what looks like a real decent radio show. Uh, but I won't do it using this voice. <laughs> no! Yeah, let's, let's not do that. Really? You don't, that's not doing anything for you? Uh, weird. So weird. It sounded so cool when I was doing it in the mirror. <laughs> well, most things do, don't they? Yeah. You know, when, when I look in the mirror and I flex muscles, I can make my breasts go up and down like Hulk Hogan. Thanks for that mental picture. Yeah. So who's on the show? What do we got? Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. The father of Terrence McKenna. The uncle of Terrence McKenna. The brother. You dolt. The brother of Terrence yes. McKenna. Excellent. Yes, that's Terrence McKenna's brother. and uh, Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. And he's a doctor. He is. Yes, actually. Uh, I'm looking at his uh, little profile here on the University of Minnesota website. Go on. Where he is a senior lecturer. Huh. Uh, what we have here... Uh, I'm going to read the little quote that he starts out with here. It says, I have a long-standing interest in natural products and in the potential for plant-derived medicines leading to the discovery of new modalities in health and healing. The integrative cross-disciplinary perspective that characterize the center make it the ideal venue in which to pursue research and education in the area of botanical medicines and natural products. Now, he's kind of like in this center, center for spirituality and healing uh, under the the uh, U of M here, but uh, uh, that's that's all above my pay grade. I, I don't know. Well, <clears throat> yeah. Well, here's the part that I'll have a hard time reading. It says Dr. McKenna brings more than 25 years of experience in bioscientist biochemistry, biochemistry, and and I can't even say this word. It's pharmacognosy. Pharma for 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 that. Pharmacognosy. Pharmacognosy. <laughs> Pharmacognosian, I don't care. Don't you remember that song when you were a kid? Uh, 
And he's a senior lecturer on topics that include ethnopharmacology and botanical medicines and healthcare. Hmm. But what we're going to talk to him about is his trip. Pharmacognosy? Uh, no. No. Uh, and we're not even saying that right. Uh, what we want to talk to him about is his work in uh, psilocybin mushrooms and DMT and his trip uh, with his brother Terrence into La Chirera down in the Amazon where they studied these things firsthand and the experiences that came forthwith from that. My God. Well, let's stop talking about it and start talking about it with him. Yeah, he's right there. Hey, Dennis. Uh, Jeff, you, you got this whole podcasting thing done. Uh, tell him why he's here. Okay. Dr. McKenna, um, as far as um, why you're here, <laughs> it's because <laughs> I essentially tracked you why down. Am I here? Why are you here? That's the big question. Uh, I essentially um, tracked down a lot of work you've done and a lot of work that your brother Terrence did <laughs> with regard to uh, DMT and the psilocybin mushroom. Uh, right. And uh, and your uh, adventures at uh, La Chirera, and um, uh, I think I think it's probably going to be a given that we're going to want to have you back multiple times. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not a given that you want to come goes. back. Right. <laughs> how much I that you want to? Yeah, exactly. My reputation is trash. <laughs> what, what's left of it? <laughs> right. But uh, um, I think uh, just kind of to lay a groundwork. Um, for people who aren't familiar with what DMT is and what the psilocybin mushroom is and what it does, can you kind of give us a brief overview of, of like, first of all, what, what is DMT and, and what does it tend to produce in people? Sure, sure. I, I, I understand neither of you have had experience, direct experience with either one of these compounds. Is that true? No, sir. Not, not yet, anyway. Not yet. Okay, but you're... <laughs> You're UFO investigators, uh, paranormal phenomena investigators, and, and experiencers. Okay. So yeah, that that'd yeah, be more long. I would say more of an experiencer than an investigator. Right. Okay, but but obviously your experience has been enough of an impact that you're, you know, that you're that you're preoccupied with this whole thing, right? In yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. Uh, well. Um, both those things, DMT and psilocybin, are probably things that um, you should try and put on your data point, uh, you know, your data sphere at some point, uh, if you can do it, because I do think it has a lot of bearing on, on this whole question. And uh, just to briefly explain what they are, they're both hallucinogens or psychedelics is maybe a better term. Um and so they're, you know, in the same class that uh, um, LSD and and uh, uh, mescaline and and these kinds of things are in. Uh, but they are in a they're in the same chemical class. They're very closely related to each other chemically. Um, DMT is uh, is short for dimethyltryptamine, and uh, and psilocybin is named after the mushrooms that it was isolated from, but it is also a tryptamine. It's, uh, it's chemically, it's called 4-hydroxy or, well, 4-phosphoryl dimethyltryptamine, but it's converted to its active form in the body, which is called psilocin, 
is the usual name, but the chemical name is 4-hydroxydimethyltryptamine. So they're very, very close chemically um, to each other, and they're also very close to um, serotonin, which is also a tryptamine and an important neurotransmitter in the in the brain. It's chemically it's 5-hydroxytryptamine, so you, it's not a dimethyltryptamine. And I don't know if this chemical stuff, uh, you know, makes sense to you or even really is important. You know, except to point out that this is a this is a you know family of chemicals. Uh, uh, and and the chemicals are closely related to serotonin, which is a very important neurotransmitter um, in the brain that has a lot to do with uh, our that mediates a lot of what we experience as consciousness or conscious experience. We know that serotonin, you know, has got its fingers in many pies. Everything from the way we eat to the way we sleep to mood to um, sexual response to obviously perception mm. and uh, the, 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 the hallucinogens, the true psychedelics as I like to call them, which includes psilocybin and DMT and these other things, all uh, target a certain uh, family of serotonin receptors. There are many different uh, subfamilies of serotonin receptors because it does do so many things. Uh, but all the psychedelics, as far as we know, all target a particular subfamily, you might call it, of these serotonin receptors. So there's a commonality of action there, you know, and they all elicit kind of similar experiences. Okay. But the tryptamines, um, you know, DMT, psilocybin, and there are others in the family, as in the family of the psychedelics, 5-methoxy, DMT, and uh, bufotenine, um, all are kind of in a similar family, and they have a, you know, a unique... Uh, pharmacology and a unique phenomenology. They are, um, well, how to put it? Um, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I mean, and they have superficial uh, resemblances to the kind of effects that something like LSD has, uh, but an experienced tripper uh, would never mistake psilocybin or DMT for LSD. They are unique, sort of, okay. and they sort of elicit this realm of experience, which I sometimes call the tryptamine dimension. I mean, it is, it is qualitatively, um, you know, it's got certain qualities that these others just don't have, um, in a blind um, dose, an experienced person would definitely know what it was. Um, out of out of say the three LSD, uh, psilocybin, or DMT, it would be a discernible difference to know. It, there would be a discernible difference, yeah, especially with DMT because DMT, um, depending on how it's taken, um, is um, you know if it's if it's taken orally. Well, if it's if it's taken orally nothing happens because it is not orally active. Um, 
it's destroyed by an enzyme in the gut called monoamine oxidase. Okay. And, uh, but it, but in, in traditional South American shamanism, there is a hallucinogenic uh, brew called ayahuasca, which means vine of the souls or vine of the dead. And it's actually always made from at least two plants, one of which contains DMT, and the other contains these monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And uh, in that form, it's orally active. Hmm. And if you don't take it with an MAO inhibitor, if you take it orally, DMT is not orally active. Now, psilocin um, is orally active uh, without an MAO inhibitor. It's just molecularly different enough. Okay. That it is not uh, it is not degraded by MAO, and so without any preparation, you know the the mushrooms are are orally active. All you have to do is well stoop over and eat them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Pick them and eat them. It doesn't require this elaborate preparation that ayahuasca does. How do they discover to to merge those two plants? Given all the plant life that's in South America. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> that, is a, that is a profound question, and nobody really knows the answer. A lot of eth- ethnobotanists and people like that have been asking that question for a long time. Out of all the 80,000 species in the Amazon, how did they figure out You know how, if you combine these two, which are not particularly you know plants that you'd want to consume, I mean, it's the bark of one, and leaf of another so it's not exactly you know they're they're not succulent looking or anything how do they figure this out well you know interestingly if you talk to the shamans how did they figure this out if you ask them they will invariably say well the plants told us you know the plants taught us to do this the plants gave us this knowledge you know and like a Western, you know, reductionist, rationalist person, you, you know, your immediate response is to say, well, that's just poppycock, that's just ridiculous, you know. So then you start asking for other explanations or thinking, well, was it trial and error? Was it, you know, right. watching animals? How do they figure it out, you know? Huh. But they will always say that, uh, you know, the plants taught us to, to do this, to make ayahuasca, which is very strange. You know, uh, although, you know, in the context of shamanism, it isn't strange at all, because in the context of traditional, you know, use of these things, um, the plants are understood to be spirits, the plants are understood to be, you know, entities that are intelligent, that communicate with people, that are, you know, as smart as we are, and, and in fact, smarter than we are. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, again, this is anthropomorphization of the thing of attributing these human properties to, um, you know, to the plants. But, but, you know, I mean, I'm a 21st century, scientifically educated, Western, you know, pretty logical reductionist kind of guy, and, uh, you know, in my own personal experiences, you get into that state and 
it's very easy to believe that you're in communication with a, another intelligence, you know, um, because a lot of what seems to be going on, it's like, I didn't come up with this stuff. Right. You know, and, and you know, uh, on the logical level, I mean, I can, I can, th- well, obviously I had to have come up with this. The, this is clearly uh, some part of my brain you know, that is split off and is presenting itself to me as another entity, another personality. I mean, that's the reductionist explanation. But in the face of the experience, you know, that explanation seems, you know, seems a little bit shallow because it doesn't doesn't seem that way at all. It does, in fact, seem... Like, uh, but with both the mushrooms and the ayahuasca, they present themselves as, you know, uh, I mean, it's you have a conversation with them, and you know, and, and it's not a conversation like we're having now, but it's a series of sort of, I don't know how to describe it, understandings, you know, yeah. uh, revelations. It's like you know, it's like sitting down and talking, except you're not talking, but you're you know, um, meditating, communing is, I guess, a word. That's a word the alien enthusiasts like, right? Right, okay. <laughs> Sitting down, you're communing with this other entity and you're exchanging information. And it's very much like that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's very much uh, uh, like that. Uh, if it's, um, uh, I, I know you... What you described it to me the other night when we, I, I'm at a distinct advantage because we had a nice conversation the other night. You were explaining it as a, more or less like a voice. Um, and yes. I know that, that when you had said that, I was curious um, in your experiences, um, well, some, has, that, has that imparted anything to you in that way? Yeah, well, sometimes it is a voice. You know, it actually appears to be a voice. But more often it's more like a uh, a gestalt of understanding. It's it's like I imagine telepathy would be actually mm-hmm. if you could communicate with somebody, maybe a loved one or or somebody that you're very close with. If you could sit down and without saying anything, if you could get, if you could, you know, to borrow another phrase from science fiction, if you if you could grok what they were saying, right. it is you know you know from Heinlein, um, it's. It's like grokking something. It's a very gestalt type of thing. But there's definite information that is that is imparted, you know. And and another thing I should say, um, you know, most people, even most people who take psychedelics and take these substances on a fairly regular basis, um, never uh, really. Um, experience this, or they rarely experience it because they don't um, they don't uh, structure the circumstances. They don't they don't organize what Leary called the set and setting properly in order to have this come to their attention. Most people take mushrooms and they're fun and it's party and you know and they never actually. Look, they never, most people, even people who take mushrooms, never take high doses. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they take medium doses and it's a recreational thing. They don't take big doses and they don't do it in a place where the purpose of the exercise is to pay attention right. to what the mushroom is telling them, not to see glitters and, and you know, do all this superstitious, superficial stuff. The purpose is to sit down and pay attention with what, what it has to teach you. And most people don't do that, you know, which is one reason why it's, uh, you know, in some ways it's good to experience this in a traditional shamanic context because in a shamanic context in, a, in South America or Mexico with the mushrooms or whatever, that's the purpose of doing it. It is not a, it is not recreation. It it's is a, a serious not a party drug at all. It's a serious, serious thing, and you're there to learn things. And if you take it under those circumstances, I mean, my brother recommended, and, and I do too, you know, with the mushrooms especially, um, and ayahuasca as well, it's um, um, the, the thing, you know, the best circumstance to take it in is in total darkness, you know, or as dark as you can get it practically and to take, in the case of mushrooms, you know, five dried grams of Stropharia cubensis is a good place to start or Psilocybe cubensis is a good place to start. And, you know, taking that amount in a quiet setting in the dark, you know, um, well, if you do that, you don't really have to work very hard. I mean, like I tell people, if you do that, you'll be utterly convinced that they've landed. I mean, it comes on, it presents itself, you know, in this very uh, strange way of, you know, being alien or, or certainly being non-human. It, it doesn't necessarily you know, say, okay, I'm extraterrestrial or something like that. It, right. it doesn't really present itself that way. It just presents itself as an intelligence and an entity that is, you know, absolutely not human, but that you can communicate with, you can understand, and that knows things that you don't know, you know, and has has things to tell you. One of the tricky parts, you know, that, uh, again, we used to play this game. It was like with the uh, with the mushrooms, it was like, okay, you know, so you know so much and you present yourself as knowing, you know, so much. So tell me something I cannot possibly know, right? right? That will That will satisfy me that you're real and it's not just, part of my brain talking to another part of my brain you know sure, how sure. can you can you actually present me with information that I cannot possibly have known and you'd be surprised <laughs> you know, how tricky that is you right, know right. <laughs> because it will I mean it will present you with um, you know it will present you with information like that, like, you know, okay, here's a star system, you know, 4.3 light years from Earth, this is a blue giant with a, you know, and like, oh, wow, well, that's okay, that's pretty cool, um, prove it, you know, how do I, how do I know, 
or it will often show things, uh, you know, in this in these visionary states. It will show um, things uh, like three dimensional hallucinations with your eyes closed, and you can't tell whether they're machines or they look like machines, but they could be buildings because there's no sense of scale, right? Uh, Or they could be organisms, or they could be, you know, they could be microscopic, they could be subcellular structures. You have no damned idea, you know, (laughs) what it is. But you, you do know, I mean, you can see for yourself that they're usually incredibly beautiful, um, incredibly intricate, and you'd be hard pressed um, to think of them on your own. You know, I mean, I mean, normally, I mean, if I'm just daydreaming or something. Well, I mean, I can sometimes come up with these, but I have a lot of experience under my belt. But I, I think that some people. I think that people are not familiar with the state would be hard pressed to come up with these types of, you know, visions spontaneously. I mean, they do definitely have this otherworldly sort of thing. And, and, you know, so that's kind of the phenomenon. Let me ask you a question. uh, When when you're in um, that state, are you, do you have your five senses? Are you seeing through first person? Are you aware of that you're still in your clothing even? Uh, all of that? Is, is all of that normal? Absolutely. Usually, yes. I mean, occasionally you get so out there that those boundaries begin to break down. But in my experience, even in high doses, you know, um, you're still you, um, your ego or your selfhood, your ego may be a little bit set back, but your selfhood is pretty much intact. Um, you know, uh, I mean, if, you know, you can be in one of these visionary states and, you know, somebody knocks on the door, you know, and it's the neighbor next door or something. I mean, you can totally come back to your body instantly, deal with the whole thing. They have no idea there's anything going on, and then you can go back and go right back into it. So it doesn't really involve loss of control, you know. Um, I mean, some things more than others. And again, it's a question of dose. But uh, generally, um, you're pretty intact. Um, You know, now, I mean, having said that, I mean, the first few times, you know, because it's such an unfamiliar state, um, you know, that may not be so easy. I mean, I mean, that's part of what shamanism is that, you know, I mean, not that I'm a shaman, but, you know, after after you get some experience under your belt, you sort of know how to deal with these things. The first few times that you do it. There's nothing threatening about it. In fact, it's quite it's quite pleasant usually. But the first few times, you want to go to an extra. You want to take extra steps to make sure that you're not disturbed. That you don't have to deal with anything in the real world if you can possibly avoid it. You know, um, and it's it's not that you can't, but why? You know, avoid it if you can because that does kind of disrupt the the whole thing. Mm. Well, the, the the thing that we had this week um, was we had a, a young lady on that uh, related an experience from her childhood in which 
um, she talked about essentially small, this is the thing I had emailed you about earlier, small, uh, furry, what she kind of described as wolf-like uh, beings around the edge of her bed when she were a child, and and uh, she said they would talk to her, and I, during the interview, I asked her, um, I said, well, what would they say? And I'm in the back of my head thinking exactly what I'm going to hear. And she said, well, they just kind of, it was just kind of gibberish. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, and I said, well, what were they like? Were they friendly? Were they, she said, well, yeah, they were friendly, but there was something like you had to keep your eye on them and you had to, um, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't want to turn your back on this kind of thing. And I'm like, I started laughing uh, just uh, to myself, and I put my head in my hands, and I said, you know, I don't know how much more connective this can possibly get, because this is exactly what I've heard people uh, talk about when they talk about the DMT experience, which is um, seeing these beings that appear as uh, some sort of uh, self-transforming machines, uh, but you're not sure exactly what they're made out of. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that I've I've uh, so often read about uh, that uh, sing things into existence to show them to you uh, at a pretty right. uh, what I understand is a pretty manic pace. Uh, Very manic, yes, compared to what we're used to. I mean, they're the class. Well, now you're talking more like DMT because yes. DMT is. You know, psilocybin is good because its clock speed or whatever you want to call it, the pace of the of the thing is much more in sync with our regular, you know, clock speed. I mean, if we're going, you know, 1.5 megahertz or whatever, psilocybin is not that far out of phase. But DMT is, like, accelerated, and... I often say, in fact, DMT is kind of like the the speeded up tape version of psilocybin, <laughs> you know, where you do have this feeling of of acceleration. I mean, you actually have a feeling of moving at sub relativistic velocities, and it's all unwinding it so fast that you can barely process it. In fact, you can't process it. It's quite overwhelming in that sense. So. You know, all this stuff is unfolding and you're seeing, and it's quite manic. It's like seeing a cartoon, you know, and it is very cartoon-like, being shown, you know, at fast-forward on a a projection screen or a videotape. It's like that, so that... You know, you feel like there's a lot of phenomena that's being uh, compressed into this 10 minutes. And, you know, at the end of the 10 minutes, you feel like, okay, a lot happened, and I don't really know what the hell happened. (laughs) You know, so it's hard to process it. You know, you don't come away with much, uh, in a sense, except an overwhelming feeling that you've just seen something incredible. you know, it's very uh, ecstatic. I mean, you feel happy. Uh, you feel exalted. You feel, more than anything, you feel astonished. You know, I mean, it's like you witnessed a miracle or something. Is it the same every time? It's for hard this kind of thing? To, um, DMT is pretty much very often, it's, I mean, with variations, 
it is pretty much the same every time or very similar, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it goes so fast and this stuff is presented so fast. It's this, it's this you know, download of, of information into the, into the brain. So you, you, in some ways I find the psilocybin experience or the ayahuasca experience, which is essentially very similar, I find them much more useful than DMT because it's like you've slowed down the tape in a way to a point where you can comprehend it, you know, and it's like, ah, okay, I can deal with this. This is much more the rate at which I can sort of process this, I can interpret it. It's not like I'm being, you know, thrown down this well of multicolored imagery and crazy stuff that right. just kind of, it's not, it, it doesn't have the roller coaster. But the, are the are the and I guess the way to put this is is that a lot of people talk about the entities within a DMT experience, and I know that Dr. Strassman has written in his book that it's not just the the DMT types; uh, it is also um, uh, he said there were humanoid uh, looking people. There were things that that really creeped me out on the way home listening to this on the iPod, which was uh, mannequin like beings um and, and things like that well, now well, you know on on that side of things does the does the, well, the question present that kind of effect at all uh well um <laughs> i mean the thing is you have to remember a couple of things you know one is that you know everybody's an individual right so mm-hmm. everybody everybody's experience is unique some people see those things. Other people don't see those things. Some people sometimes see those things and, and not other times. Hmm. The, the other thing you have to remember is most of these things are interpretations that you make after the fact. Uh-huh. I mean, that is something that uh, I've noticed, particularly with DMT. It's, I mean, you're scarcely down. You know, you're scarcely back from the thing where... It, before you reach a point where the mind is trying to make sense of this, you know, you're utterly overwhelmed with what happens and you're already constructing hypotheses, you know, about what did I see? Were there entities? Were they machines? What were they saying? You're, you know, you're trying to put all this in a framework to make sense of it, you know, because this is what we do. You know, this is what the human mind does. It tries to make sense out of the world. So I think, you know, people do come up with these similar interpretations, you know. But, you know, that's why it's so tricky, so hard to get a handle on this. Because do they come up with similar interpretations? Because, you know, that's just the way we're built. And everybody's got similar neural architecture and you know, when these experiences happen, everybody's going to interpret it in more or less in the same way. Or is it because there really is some objectivity to it? And, uh, and you know, is it really another dimension? I mean, I hesitate to use that word, but, you know, you have to, uh, you have to entertain that possibility. You know, and, and the same is similar with ayahuasca and mushrooms. Same, same thing, mm. although you know less. Uh, 
and because the experience is slower, there's not this scrambling effort to put it all together. But you see the same types of, uh, you know, mythical themes, the same types of creatures come up. You know, again, this is where something like shamanism is very useful. If you look at the paintings, you know, of Pablo Amaringo, um, who is a Peruvian ayahuascaro who, who paints his visions, you know, if you look at those visions, every one of the entities in there that he paints, he didn't just dream these up. You know, they have a place in the cosmology, uh, you know, of, of ayahuasca. I mean, they have names, they have roles, he can tell you what each one is. And, you know, and of course their interpretation is, is religious, you know, or, or that kind of thing. Does your uh, emotional state going into this predict uh, the type of outcome you're going to have? Um, if you're scared, will you see something scary? If you're happy, will you see something Not happy? necessarily, no, no. Um, going into it, um, smoking DMT, um, there is usually considerable uh, trepidation. I mean, there is considerable fear. Um, and, you know, you'd be nuts if you weren't. If you didn't have a little fear, knowing what was going to happen. But, but, you know, usually, I mean, almost always, you know, that drops away immediately. You know, that isn't even operating anymore. It's like, you know, okay, I know I'm going to step over the cliff here, you know, but once you've stepped over, it's like, okay, you know, I'm in the hands of the gods or whatever, and I'm just, you know, floating along, and I hope I land safely. So the fear goes away. Uh, with mushrooms, with ayahuasca, there can also be an element of fear. Um, sometimes the things you see are uh, are frightful, um, um, or ugly, or or ought to be frightening, but are not. And that's the odd thing. I mean, they can be, you know, as frightening as any horror movie, but you're sort of you're sort of separated from them. I mean, it's like watching a movie in a way. I mean, it's like you can choose to be afraid, or you can choose to be Oh, okay, you know, I'm looking at this, fine, you know, what else you got, you know? <laughs> Does their reaction to you change with uh, whatever you give to them emotionally? It, it, it does. Yeah, it does. It actually does. You can modulate the experience quite a bit. You can say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see all these monsters anymore, you know, show me something beautiful. And it'll like, okay, well, how about this, <laughs> you know? Wow. And, and, and so there is a certain degree of, um, you know, there's a certain degree of control over the thing. So have you, uh, do, you do you see uh, commonalities in the abduction literature and uh, what you've experienced? Well, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, Strassman's written about this. Um uh, you know, a lot. And, and the people that he was working with, you know, he was giving them DMT. He was giving them high doses. He was doing a dose escalation study. Um, he was giving them, uh, he was giving it to them intravenously, which is, you know, about the most direct way you can give that drug. 
and things didn't really get interesting for those people. Well, they got interesting, but they didn't get into this alien abduction territory um, until they got to really pretty substantial doses, you know, and then it began to manifest. And and I, I have to admit, I have probably not taken uh, high enough doses of DMT uh, to really go to that place, uh, <clears throat> but I certainly have had enough experiences like that with with high doses of mushrooms and it's a very it's a very similar kind of thing and it's you know i mean it's you know you just had to be there kind of thing this is why you know you have to do this to uh to really get what i'm talking about you know you have to um you have to do it under these controlled circumstances and you'll see what i mean you know i mean it's like it, they're very matter-of-fact about it. I mean, this this is the odd thing, you know. If you take uh, high doses of mushrooms under these circumstances, it just pretty much manifests and says, you know, yeah, you know, we are, um, well, if if not if not extraterrestrial, at least alien entities. Uh, you know, we've been. We've had an evolutionary relationship with your species, uh, you know, ever since the beginning. And, you know, we know a lot. And, uh, you know, we're basically controlling evolution. And we're controlling the, the, you know, emergence of intelligence on this planet. And, you know, and the world is not like you think it is, you know. Because, uh, you know, you... I mean, I say jokingly about ayahuasca, but I, I mean it seriously. I often say, you know, if I get one message from ayahuasca, you know, it is, you monkeys only think you're running the show, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it's very insistent about that. It's like, no, you're, you're not running the show, and you don't know shit. Why, 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 is, it, <laughs> you know? why is it that you would be able to, um, you know take a substance and, and have that kind of very clear message come to you. But if you're an abductee, you know, there's all of this just, ah, just complete terror and no concise message like that. I mean, have abductees uh, been included in these experiments? No, that, that is a, that's a good question. And I think, I think the answer is complex. I think for one thing, um, when you take the drug, you know, you there's a degree of control. Uh, you know something strange is going to happen. You know, you expect something strange is going to happen. So you might be afraid, but you're also, in some sense, you know, pumped up for it. You're, you're ready for something strange to happen. And so when it starts to happen, you don't get, you know, you don't get too upset. Abductees, apparently, these things happen to uh, more spontaneously. I mean, I know I would be quite alarmed, you know, if that just if it just started happening. Mm. I mean, I mean, I would I would wonder if I was losing my mind. I was wonder, you know, being experienced with psychedelics. I would wonder has somebody given me a psychedelic without me knowing, or. Is there something, you know, even stranger than that going on, you know? So I think part of it is the spontaneity of it. I think also I think part of it, you know, we don't know. 
you know, we don't know really, and this is very slippery, you know, to get your hands around or get your head around because, you know, we know that there are certain states like uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, for example. I don't know if you've gone into the literature or looked at that at all, have you? Yeah, a little bit, peripherally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, personally? <laughs> personally, no. Personally, no, no. Well, temporal lobe epilepsy is pretty interesting because temporal lobe epilepsy is, n is not um, where it's a lesion in the temporal lobe of the brain. And the temporal lobe is a part of the brain that is involved with uh, kind of your place, uh, kind of orienting you in space and time and orienting you in terms of your relationship with the rest of the world and all that. And when uh, people who have temporal lobe epilepsy um, have these spontaneous experiences, which you might call mystical experiences, or a better term is probably transpersonal experiences, where suddenly they feel you know, these uh, feelings of oceanic oneness uh, you know, they feel, uh, you know, in contact with everything. Uh, they have ecstatic experiences. They have revelations. They have, you know, and they often, there are certain, you know, they have personality types, um, you know, which uh, seem to be a, a characteristic of the, of the epileptic state. They're often preoccupied with metaphysical questions, you know, they will uh, think about philosophy and religion and all this, and they often write long screeds. They do hypergraphia. They have wild theories about how the world's put together, and they are compelled to put these things down. Um, and they have, you know, and, and they're prone to saying things like, like, you know, suddenly it was all clear to me, or you know, the moment I've been waiting for all my life, you know, has come, right? And they have these types of experiences. Now, I'm not, um, you know, don't get me wrong. I am not trying to reduce this to illness. And I'm not trying to reduce it to, like, a brain uh, thing, necessarily, whether it's a brain damage or, or something. I'm not really trying to... Uh, put it down. I'm just saying that, you know, in the in the realm of phenomena that can be looked at, you know, and probed scientifically, which repeatability is an important criterion in science. That's why the psychedelics are so interesting in this respect, because, you know, they are molecular probes that enable us to look at these altered states at these very peculiar states of mind, like alien abduction type states, you know, under controlled circumstances. And so they're very valuable. It's very hard to, you know, one of the problems with the whole study of the alien contact, alien abduction phenomenon is you can't set that experiment up. You know, you just have to wait and hope that it happens and hope that you know, you've got your wits about you when it happens or the cameras are running or whatever it is. But things like temporal lobe epilepsy and psychedelics, you can actually approach this stuff in an experimental 
uh, way. You know, you can set up an experiment and then you can pull the trigger and see what happens. So I think that's very useful. Um, you know, another thing, um, I mean, as long as I'm raving on these, on these, uh, these neuroscience issues, you know, there's a lot of similarity between the DMT state, the so-called out-of-body state, and the near-death experience. And, you know, Strassman talks about this. And there's a lot of similarities between those things and the alien abduction contact with, you know, lights in the sky or disc-shaped objects. I mean, there's very little difference between approaching, uh, you know, a shining silver disc and approaching, you know, a shining light-filled passageway, which is what happens, supposedly, when you have a near-death experience. And it very often happens with DMT. It's a very similar thing. And DMT is... In the human brain, I mean, you've read Strassman's book, so you already know all this. Uh, you know, it's in the human brain. You can make a case that uh, at the moment of death, um, the human brain, the brain is probably flooded with a massive release of DMT, as long, along with a lot of other things, but that this may be a reasonable... Uh, simulation, if not in fact the near-death experience, it, it it definitely comes close, mm. you know. And and as people say who have experienced the near-death experience and return to talk about it, they don't feel afraid, you know. They feel ecstasy. They feel only joy, you know, as they move toward this this singularity, this tunnel, this white light, whatever it is, you know. They feel um, they feel a great deal of joy and ecstasy, and that's what DMT is. Mm. Well, that gets me to, to one question that I wanted to ask you about, which was uh, separate manifestations outside of psychedelic states for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I know that uh, in uh, True Hallucinations, which I'm still reading, uh, mm -hmm. when you all were traveling... And I believe you had stopped at uh, at one place before you reached La Chirera, uh, which was kind of like the place where you met the uh, where everybody kind of unloaded their baggage to a certain point to lighten the load for the hike into the jungle. Mm -hmm. um, and Terence wrote in there that uh, you all had seen a light in a field um, that that <laughs> apparently apparently was was there and. And, and, and you were trying to kind of chase it around or uh, get up to it. Um, yeah. And then later on in the book, of course, Terrence talks about his UFO sighting, which was pretty profound in, in my opinion because I've heard identical um, similarities to that that I spoke to you about on the phone. Right, uh, which was the typical, you know, Georgia Damsky right. uh, completely um, – you know, I mean, I mean, vacuum cleaner, hubcap, you <laughs> exactly. know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah like that yeah, self-contradictory thing. So it was a joke, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the other thing about DMT, uh, and especially about the mushrooms, you know. Uh, ayahuasca less so. Uh, ayahuasca is more 
sort of stern, but the mushrooms are very mischievous, mm. you know, and very funny. You know, I mean, it's like they're playing with you. It's like they have a great sense of humor, and they're very sort of elf in that way. And it's just the sort of thing you would expect them to do. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what what do you say to that when you when you hear about uh, and experience yourself things that are outside of a psychedelic state that are manifesting that look similar to? what you see in a psychedelic in other words that bleed over i mean what are we really supposed to do with that because what are we you know? well yeah i don't know i don't know what <laughs> we're really supposed to do with it i mean uh, you know i don't know uh, i mean that's the thing uh, at, uh, you know at the end of all this talking and speculation i come around to saying i don't know you know what the hell is going on you know, yeah. And, yeah. and it's very sort of frustrating. I mean, I guess if we knew, we wouldn't have to talk about it. I'm not sure, <laughs> you know. But right. it's something about it's something about the way that the, you know, that the that our brains are the brain mind, you know, synthesizes reality and puts it together. And I think maybe that's what it is. I don't believe for a minute that. You know, the aliens come from, uh, you know, other star systems. I mean, I think there may well be uh, aliens in the galaxy, and there may well be other, you know, in other star systems, but the likelihood that they are here hanging around and, and carrying out, you know, proctological examinations on people that they, you know, sort of randomly abduct from lonely places it just it just described it strikes me as so unlikely i mean doesn't it strike you that way uh, it strikes me as uh, more or less that that um that whole human attribution of trying to put it in a box and this is just the first thing that we thought of and i don't know if i told you or not but uh when jeremy and i went to washington dc to uh, uh, take part in this uh, basically like a disclosure conference of sorts. We usually go to kind of uh, uh, do our little interviews and talk to different people in the field and 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 at the end of this, Jeremy stood up in front of all of the, the 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 panels were laid out and the the whole crowd and he said, you know, I'm just curious. You know, you all are laying out this big uh, diplomacy pattern for. What's going to happen when this is all disclosed, and you don't even really know that it's extraterrestrial, or do you? And what proof do you have that it is extraterrestrial? And I think that one of the most frustrating things about that was that uh, one of the most senior members on that panel, uh, a guy named Dr. Bruce McAbee, who I have nothing but respect for and what he's done in this field, but he, he kind of almost irritated me with his answer. They says, well, you know, uh, when you're talking about extra dimensions, I don't really know where to go with that. <laughs> you know, and my answer is, okay, since we don't know where to go with it, that means we just go with the easy way and delude yeah, ourselves to that. That means we just dismiss it. Yeah, right, yeah. right. I mean, that, that's exactly right. I mean, when you don't know what the phenomenon is, I mean, this is, I think we touched on this a little bit in our previous conversation, you know, about crop circles yeah. and things like that. I mean, crop circles are another example of, you know, 
I mean, they are definitely an anomalous phenomenon. I do not believe that all crop circles are, uh, you know, done by drunken Englishmen having a good time after they've left the pub. It just doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. It's not pot. That's as crazy an explanation as anything. So here's a physical phenomenon, clearly of intelligent origin, and yet all the SETI people you know, totally dismiss this. I mean, they say, well, you know, it's not a radio signal, so forget it. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, this is the weird thing. You know, the, the people, I mean, the, the phenomenon that puzzles me about this whole thing is that the people who are most deeply involved in this stuff on the public level uh, you know, the SETI people, you know, serious scientists looking for signals from outer space, and even the the serious, you know, uh, supposedly serious UFO people have an almost um, embarrassing lack of imagination. Right. You know, uh, I mean, they have no vision at all. You know, oh, we're talking about other dimensions? Well, we can't be bothered with that. You know, we have nothing to say. We don't, you know, that's woo-woo stuff. You know, uh, you know, and this is why it's very difficult when you bring up the subject of drugs. You oh, know? my God, so, yeah. God, you know, now it's like, oh, well, you know, you're just, you know, these crazy whacked out hippies you know who right. have no so you can't even talk about it you know yeah. and yet here is a a tool a pharmacological tool if you will that in a in that gives you the ability to look at a lot of this phenomenon experimentally but you know they don't want to hear about it i mean they're you know i mean they want it to be they're, I think on some level, I think they're afraid that it is something really, really, really strange. And they don't want to go there. They want it to be extraterrestrials. Okay, we can deal with that. Extraterrestrials who are, have technological capabilities. They build ships. They come here. It's all good. You know, they're basically like us. You know, right. they're tinkers and they move around in space and time. No, no, it ain't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we've had that conversation enough on this show. I mean, it's it's been, and, and we've covered the gambit before. I think uh, Jeremy and I talking last night were saying that, you know, it's uh, it, there. there's a monetary value to sticking to your guns and defending your theory. And then there's the people who are so deep into that theory that they can't get out of it because then they'll really be thought uncredible if they just abandon their theory that they've been married to for 35 years. Um, yep. And I'm, yeah. I'm always the one that, uh, and Jeremy as well, we're the guys saying, you know, why isn't Jacques Vallée... Uh, um, you know, he's certainly a well-known figure, but why isn't his uh, his outlooks and his uh, um, postulations on on different avenues to look at? Why didn't he get a better reception than he did? Why Why didn't he get a better reception? Exactly, and, and totally. Well, yeah, because basically, <laughs> these people, you know, they don't really want to understand it and they're afraid i think they're afraid basically yeah. that yeah. it doesn't fit into any paradigm that they can wrap their heads around right. and so right. people like you and jeremy coming at it from 
from one direction and people like me coming at it from, you know, this other direction. I mean, we're just, you know, we're just completely dismissed, which is why I don't even bother anymore. You know, I mean, I mean, how does it feel to be so, such a wacko that you're dismissed by the wacko? <laughs> the, the fringe of the fringe, as my friend Tim Benal said. Yeah, the fringe of the fringe, right, <laughs> yes. exactly. Yeah. So, okay, well, so all right, you know, whatever. Well, I'm in pretty, I, I'm in pretty good company then. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's great. But the thing is, they'll never understand. What do the, know, uh, they, what do the shaman Say, do they have a delineation between, like, do they believe in gods and aliens and uh, whatever these plant uh, intelligences are? Do they have separations like that, or is it all one thing to them? What, what do they say about all of this? It's all pretty much one thing. I mean, to them, they're totally matter of fact about this whole thing. You know, I mean, they live in this world. You know, pretty much all the time. You know, they take ayahuasca, but they're you know they're they're pretty much in this state all the time and and they're they're i guess what you'd call animists you know and that's kind of where where i'm at with it you know i mean they think everything's intelligent everything has consciousness um you know of course the plants are intelligent of course the dolphins are intelligent uh, you know and and so they live you know in this magical world which which i think is a lot closer to you know, sort of the magical world that everyone lived in before, you know, we had, we had writing, we had print, we had this way of perceiving the world that, you know, is so filtered through, you know, sort of our assumptions and our, uh, our vision and our, you know, our Western education and all that to the shaman's it's a very different world, you know, and they're pretty much in touch with it all the time. I mean, just as an illustration, just as a trivial illustration, you know, I, I've been, I'm an ethnobotanist. That's partly my day job. And I was researching um, Amazonian plants to treat schizophrenia. You know, I had a um, grant to do that. So, I hung out with a number of shamans. I got to know one pretty well, and I said, so, okay, what plants do you use to treat schizophrenia? And he said, well, we have two. You know, he said, when you're, if the person is hearing voices, then we use this plant. And, uh, you know, and that perked up my ears because that's a nice Western, you know, symptom of schizophrenia. People hear voices, so aha, okay, great. They use this plant. If you have, but if the person has been enchanted by the dolphins, <laughs> then we use this plant. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that, and he was just that was to him. One was as real as the other, you know. And uh, and they live in a in a different reality, you know. And I think. And this really comes back to the way that, uh, you know, I mean, our brains, you know, this idea, this conversation about drugs, you know, is so stupid to my mind and so so trivial, um, so sort of superficial because, you know, I, I mean, I teach a course on drugs, culture, and society at the university, and I put a quote up from Salvador Dali who said, uh, I don't take drugs, I am drugs. 
And if you think about it, that's really true. You know, we are made of drugs. You know, we are brains or biochemical engines that are made of drugs. And that's why drugs work. That's why drugs from the outside world work. You know, you can take them and they interact with these receptors and these receptors are the co-evolutionary relationship of the fact that we've, we've co-evolved with all these plant chemicals, you know, and um, over the course of evolutionary time. And, and basically what I'm getting at is that, you know, the brain, what we call reality is really a hallucination. You know, we are living inside a hallucination. And, you know, what we call reality is a fiction or a myth that is constructed by our brain in order to enable us to navigate through the world and, you know, in order for us to, uh, you know, make sense of things and, and survive and not step in front of buses and things like that. I mean, it has a certain, you know, correspondence with, with external reality, but the the model of reality that our brains construct, it looks nothing like reality. You know, I mean, the physicists tell us this, you know, our, our instruments tell us that reality looks, uh, looks very different, you know, and it's, you know, electromagnetic waves and, and things like that. And, and, and process and, and, and qualities like color and smell and texture and, and beauty and, uh, you know, all of these things, these are all supplied by the brain, you know, by the human perception that, that uh, you know, takes in information through in, in, from the outside through this sensory neural interface, filters it, interprets it, uh, mashes it together, synthesizes it all together, and creates the reality hallucination. You know, and then you step into the reality hallucination, and that's where you live. You know, that's where we all live. And, and you know, we have a close enough correspondence between these different realities that we all live in that, you know, there's definitely something objective there. We have a shared, we're sharing of the hallucination to a certain degree. But, you know, we can change the signal slightly. I mean, it's kind of like tuning a radio or something, you can tune another channel, you can take a drug and change the nature of this sensory neural interface, and things change, but it's still the same reality, only our model of it and our interpretation of it has changed. What do you think about the possibility that, uh, as a species, we, you know, on the whole anyway, stepped out of magical thinking into this rational materialist mindset so that we could build ourselves up... um, in that way and become more almost individuated as a species to then um, reincorporate ourselves back into that larger picture. Do you think that's the next step? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I think, I think actually I do. I think, I think that's very possible. I think that may be why we had to go through all this in a way we had to separate ourselves from the matrix. We had to, in fact, develop an ego, develop a point of view. We had to eat of the of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. I mean, literally, that's what we had to do. That may be what these psychedelic plants are, you know, on a mythological sense. They are, you know, in a way, you've got your non-conscious 
uh, non-linguistic, non-technological primate, you know, kind of living in the jungle, having a great old time, not thinking a whole lot, not thinking in a rational sense anyway. And then at some point, and in fact, Terence has speculated on this, and, and I have as well, that, you know, the chance encounter of, you know, with some of these psychedelic plants might have uh, been a triggering event that led to the emergence of consciousness. And maybe that's what these things are there for. I mean, this is what the mushrooms, excuse me, but this is what the mushrooms will tell you, you know, in the same way that, you know, the shamans say, well, the plants told us, you know, how to do this. If you, if you take the mushrooms under these experiences, they'll pretty much present this as, uh, uh, you know, this is what's happening. And it's, it's like they're not presenting it to, they're not trying to convince you. They're not trying to say, you know, try this idea out. It's like, you know, hey, man, this is it. <laughs> you know, and you're like, well, you're like, what? Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but there it is. <laughs> well, the more I, the more I hear you talk about this stuff, and I, I think I mentioned to you that I, I've kind of been riding this idea for quite a while, at least as it applies to to, to our interest in all this, is that, um. Over the course of years and people that I've spoken with, it seems to be a constant as far as the experiencer syndrome um, that uh, that Jeremy and I uh, are a part of is that the more attention, the more the more focus or borderline obsession on the subject, and not just asking the simple questions, but asking the deeper personal questions seems to make things manifest. And the more I'm hearing you talk, the more I'm kind of getting the idea that is it something that, uh, I've always said this has a lot more to do with us um, and our nature of perception than it does, as I said before, of little green men from Planet X. But um, with you on that. Yeah, going from that, I'm wondering if, um, you know, I I always kind of had the idea of, of of windows or doors that somehow thought was opening up, or intent was opening up, uh, to allow these things to manifest here. But I'm wondering if what's happening now is uh, uh, is the focus of intent or thought changing our or possibly altering our perceptions in order to see what's already there that we just can't perceive of in a normal state or what we define yeah. as normal quote unquote normal uh, right. state right. or whether that's uh, just a, a, a just that slight shift in in perception that is allowing these things to be vis- to be seen um, as opposed yeah, to think, you know I think that's very much true I, I think that's very much true it's a way of entraining ourselves as you say to see things that are always there but that we don't normally um, see because of the nature of this sensory neural filter Mm -hmm. that we, this hallucination. And the hallucination that we construct for ourselves is not simply um, based on our, uh, you know, on our neural architecture, our physiology, the way our brain is structured. It's also um, conditioned by culture and history and all of these things. This is why, again, if you hang out with these shaman, you realize that, you know, 
they live in a different world, and their reality is as valid as your reality is. And, and your reality, you know, it's close enough that, you know, you can walk down the trail with them and have a conversation and, you know, all that stuff. But what they are seeing when they walk through the jungle and what you see are co- two completely different things. You know, they see so much that's going on, you know, that you don't see. Right. And probably if you reverse that situation, you know, if you took one of these guys and put them in the middle of Manhattan Island at rush hour, you know, then you'd be the one that's more on top of what's going on, and they would be very confused, you know. Right. Um, so I, I do agree. I think that I think that that's a lot of what it is. I think that these are tools that enable us to learn different ways of perceiving. And uh, I don't know. I mean, huh. I, I don't know if that's if there's anything more to it than that. You know? I mean, I, it's certainly the thing that fascinates me about it is the whole similarity to, and not not as a whole, but there are definite connective threads that I'm seeing between the experiences that we've had and uh, psychedelic experiences. Um, and I described, yeah, yeah. And you other, know, other types of, uh, uh, you know, uh, paranormal, paranormal, exactly. Yeah. And, I, uh, I was recollecting what you described to me, um, the other night about your lost time mm-hmm. experience and right. being at the Chesapeake Bay and then being like six hours away. Right. And just, uh, just recollecting that, you know, phenomena like that are described in shamanism all the time. You know, there's a word for it, in fact, called bilocation. You've probably heard of that. It's it's being in two places at once. And, you know, if you go into the literature on Siberian shamanism particularly, um, you know, this is this comes up. You know, it's just it's something it's something that they know how to do, or claim they do. You know, and it's one of these things where you know this stuff all just seems so improbable from the particular box uh, that we inhabit most of the time. This rationalist reductionist box. It's so easy to dismiss all this. Right. Uh, you know, and, and so, I mean, most of the time, I don't know if I, you're like me, but most of the time I do inhabit a, a rationalist reductionist box, you know, but, I mean, because it seems like a good, you know, sort of initial stance in some ways, you know, skepticism is always good. Absolutely. In, in a certain sense, you know, approach it with, with skepticism, but also you have to keep an open mind. And, and that's, I think for me, that's what psychedelics have done. They've said, okay, you're welcome to your skepticism. Just remember, you don't know shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so stay humble, you know, and, and keep your uh keep your your mind open because you know, you might learn something. <laughs> well, there's there's a question out of uh, out of your experiences at La Chirera that I've got to ask um because it's pretty much dumbfounded me in the book uh which was you walking through the jungle with no glasses on in the middle of the night to all of these different locations. Uh, right. 
that um, that uh, your brother described as being a, a shaman's walk. Am I saying that right? Or um, yeah, that yep. kind yep. of experience. So, what um, if you if you can describe for us what the onset was and and how that happened and what occurred to you that night? Well, you know, it's it's hard for me to describe it because my recollection is poor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I was in, uh, I don't know what you call it, a trance, another place. Um, I mean, I know from, you know, descriptions of what happened and where I went and so on, and descriptions of classical shamanism, um that that's what it was. It was a shamanic journey because that's what the shaman does. He goes, he goes to, he goes on a journey. That's, that's kind of, kind of the classic theme of the thing. He goes on a journey. He goes to the world tree or he goes to an axis and the axis mundi, the world tree, the axis of the world. And uh, that is usually visualized as a tree, although in Siberian shamanism it's visualized as a mushroom. Um, in ayahuasca shamanism it's sometimes visualized as an ayahuasca vine that stretches up to the sky and, and is a ladder because the leaves are arranged like a ladder. But there is some kind of a, an axis that unites the sky this world, the middle world, and the underworld. And and the shaman, if he does nothing else, he goes to this axis. This is the way he gets uh, access to the upper realm and the lower realms, is by traveling up and down this axis. And that's what I did. You know, I went wandering into the jungle. I found a tree. I climbed up into the tree, and then who knows? <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. I yeah. just launched off into it. I, I mean, I guess I just sat there for a while, but I, uh, you know, I was off on a, a shamanic journey. And, you know, I mean, really, shamanism is a good, uh, you know, a, a good thing to look into because. It's so similar in some ways to a lot of these phenomena. I I have no doubt that you've given uh, (laughs) uh, 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 both of us and and our listeners a lot to read about. (laughs) So we have have homework to do. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a, uh, yeah, I mean, mean, the thing is there is a whole literature around this. So, you know, it's not like, and it's outside the, the writing about UFOs and extraterrestrials and yet, you know, I think it can shed light on this. So, w- one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and that we didn't discuss, but um, I'd like to ask your own experience. One of the things that I think is part of uh, this whole mix is the uh, are, are some of these in the abduction experiences are some of these dream states, and particularly uh, paralytic um, dream states. Hmm. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Can you give me what is a paralytic yeah, example? Well, when you're asleep, lucid, and not so much lucid. Well, maybe lucid too. But when you're asleep and you kind of know you're asleep, you can't really wake up and you can't really move. 
and you're unable to move or it takes a great deal and things are going on. I mean, I have had these states. Um, I mean, the closest thing I've experienced to an abduction state um, outside of psychedelics is actually a state like this where I feel like, you know, I'm on the bed. There are entities around me. Um, not particularly threatening, though not particularly friendly, um, and I'm not able to respond. I'm not able to get up and leave, you know, I, and I know I'm in the bed and I'm paralyzed. And, uh, and this, this, is, this is known as well. I, I think, again, from other sources, like the experience of the, of the uh, incubus and the succubus. In, sure, right. The old hag. Yeah, the old hag or the experience of having something sitting on your chest. Um, you know, and I've, uh, I mean, I've often wondered, you know, how often do those experience, those experiences happen, um, you know, when you're in one of these paralytic dream states and the damn cat comes in and sits on your chest. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about your cat, but right. Mike does it all the time yeah. if you're not awake, you know. So um, I, I mean I can't say as I personally had uh, very much of that uh, at all, uh, really. I mean, there's been my my childhood things. Uh, I think that was a small part of that, um, but there was so much more on top of that that I can't really ascribe that. I mean, what you're describing sounds a little bit like again what they they refer to as sleep paralysis and and. Yeah, mine yeah. mine had a, a a really tiny point of that in it, but I can't say that um, that I've ever had that direct of a experience with sleep paralysis to know that I've I've um, uh, so so in these in these experiences of abduction where you're in the bed and things are around you you've had that right but it's well not- most of mine yeah. has been uh while i'm awake uh <laughs> which is worse i guess in a way um uh, but how uh, did you know you were awake uh well my wife was with me for one uh that's, particular that's, one that was, <laughs> that, was okay. that, that was shared so um i tend okay. to think we were since since um we were driving <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but 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 no. In in I'll and I'll I'll say this uh, if I haven't already for the show because I really can't remember if I mentioned this or not. But it was uh, actually it was right after our conversation on the phone, um, and uh, I went downstairs and I was telling my wife what an amazing conversation I have with Dr. McKenna, and we talked for about two and a half hours, and uh, then I called Jeremy, and I was telling Jeremy about this, and again, going from that standpoint of the more attention that's paid to this, or more the focus that's going, and of course, conversations like this, which are so deep, um, and, and ultimately, to me, really meaningful, that seems to... Uh, almost manifest something. Uh, so that night, uh, I uh, I went to bed. I think. Well, I, I actually got a bowl of ice cream. I was sitting in my easy chair watching TV for about an hour, and then uh, about two o'clock, I fell asleep in my chair. Mm-hmm. I woke up. I brushed my teeth. 
uh, changed my clothes, went upstairs, and I got uh, into bed, and I was actually uh, cracking open a book. Um, about that time, I heard a loud uh, or, or semi-loud, like a, um, uh, a, 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 I guess like a, a rotating hum sound, which was like woo, 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 coming from the opposite end of the house. And at first thought, I said, well, it's probably a helicopter, because uh, I have heard them. We're in a Cape Cod house, so we get kind of a weird uh, uh, little acoustic thing going on with the peaked roof. Um, and, uh, and it got louder, and it, wasn't, it didn't seem to be moving away from us. It seemed to be moving over top the house, uh, to which at that point, I kind of just laid there and, and, and began to think a lot of what I've read that your brother's written a lot of what you and I talked about, a lot of what Jeremy and I have talked about, about my fear regarding this stuff. And I said, you know, I might as well uh, stop with that and just kind of pay attention. (laughs) And uh, so I laid there, and I could not believe how loud it got, but it wasn't a shrill sound. It was a very low sound to the point where... The pillow uh, underneath my head, I could feel the percussion of the revolution of the hum in that pillow. So it was it was definitely something uh, very deep to be able to 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 pull a percussion off like that. And for a second, I debated should I reach over and try and wake up my wife Lisa, and she was laying beside me. But when I went to roll over. I noticed that the bottom half of my legs from the near d- knee down didn't seem to want to work. Uh, so, uh, again, I just kind of ignored that and rolled over and I said, it doesn't matter because she's not going to wake up anyway. <laughs> um, because that kind of thing seems to be rather common with, with my experiences at least. And, uh, and I, I was talking to Jeremy about this the, the next day after work and I was it's it's very hard to explain this and it's hard to to actually know if i'm saying it right but as perked as i was and as awake as i was uh i have a real hard time trying to figure out how did i fall asleep during that because i did because i remember that the short moments right before my eyes were shutting there was obviously someone standing down towards the end of the bed, but on my side of the bed. And all I got in, in any kind of, of communication at all was um, either hold still or where does it hurt? And then I, there's nothing else until morning. Now, interestingly enough, <laughs> I was talking about this with a friend of mine and my 16-year-old is sitting in the chair, and he says, you know, that woke me up. I heard that, too. Uh, and I, he said, I had a heck of a time going back to sleep after that. And I said, well, you know, was it that humming, that real, real? He's like, yeah, it was very loud. So, again, <laughs> I got to wonder, am I, uh, by so- the, the, the talk and the focus of all this, is that what's facilitating some kind of manifestation of all of this. 
That's my big question. I mean, I mean, so you you heard this thing, you got up, you went to the other end of the house? I got up and I got as far as my doorway. Uh, okay. And then I basically um, kind of twaddled back and got into bed and just laid there thinking, okay, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but as as the, the, the seconds wore on, it was pretty obvious that this wasn't a helicopter because after a while you start to hear the chop of the blades, and I didn't hear that. Right, it just right. continued with that same revolution hum. Uh, so, that, so why did you go back to bed? Why didn't you continue on to investigate? <laughs> I have no answer for That's that. Question, right? <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know. Well, that's that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I have a. I told you on the phone. I have a great amount of fear regarding this stuff, and uh, uh, and that uh, I gotta say, you know, that was kind of a, a pretty good milestone for me to be able to lay there and just wait and watch. Um, so. Well, Doctor McKenna, uh, did you notice like when you saw the light in the field, or when uh, you know Terrence saw the Adamski light craft? Did, did you happen to remember? Were you guys talking about this? type of stuff? Were you focused on it at the time when you saw it? We were focused on it, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I was not, uh, when Terrence saw the uh, Dansky craft, I was not there, I mean, I was there, but I was so out of it at that point, I was off in my own parallel universe. I mean, I never saw anything like that. So, in fact, he's the only one that, that you know, saw that which conveniently enough, right, there's no way to verify that he actually saw that. When we saw the light in the field, this idea of the light in the field um, was a theme that that sort of started when we started taking mushrooms as we were, as we were moving down the Putumayo and then up this other river, and we were taking a lot of mushrooms, <laughs> far more than probably we should have been, um, but this idea that, you know, there was a light in the field and it was a mushroom or it was something, um, yeah, we were very much talking about it, you know. But, of course, we were three sheets to the wind. I mean, we were, we were you know, loaded on mushrooms. So what can you say, mm. you know. Um, but, but very much uh, at La Cherera, if you've read, uh, well, you've read True Hallucinations, uh, you know, this theme that, you know, we were trying to follow these instructions that were being downloaded to us by this entity, whatever it was. We called it the teacher. That was as good as anything, I guess, to call it that was trying to inst instruct us how to make this artifact out of, you know, sound and DNA and uh, mushrooms and, and all of this and... It was very much like uh, an alchemical uh, process. We, in fact, we were both uh, at the time, and really still are, but at the time we were very much steeped in Jungian psychology. And Jung, you know, wrote extensively about alchemy. And so, you know, we understood uh, a lot about the symbol of alchemy, and the alchemy is about you know, I mean, on, on the on the most superficial level, it's about transforming base metal into gold, right? That isn't really what it's about at all. It's about transforming, you know, the psyche. It's into something different. 
and it uses the you know the symbols of chemistry, the language of chemistry, and and all this language about distillation and color changes and all that to symbolize what is essentially a psychic process, a process of of psychic transformation. When we and the making of the philosopher's stone, right, and the philosopher's stone is just another term for the flying saucer. Essentially, it was the early conception of the flying saucer, of this artifact that is the ultimate artifact that can do anything. And that's what we were trying to create. We were trying to create an artifact that essentially would do anything that you could imagine because it would be the imagination in a certain sense. I mean, this is how whacked out we were. You know, we actually actually took this stuff seriously and tried to make this thing. And, uh, you know, and when it didn't manifest the way that we predicted it would, what did happen was that, you know, something had to give, right? Something was going to happen. So what happened was that we underwent this simultaneous psychosis, which could be called a psychosis, that lasted 14 days or longer, that, you know, but could also be construed as a shamanic initiation because all of the all of the themes were there. The themes of, you know, in shamanism, another thing that comes up again and again in shamanism the world over is that the shaman undergoes initiation and that process involves being torn apart, literally torn to pieces and put back together again in a way that is different, you know, so that they are actually a transformed being. Mm -hmm. And like in, in certain um, traditions like in Siberia and South America, sometimes in Australia, you know, they have this idea that, you know, they put, you know, they incorporate crystals and things like this into the recreated body, you know, of the shaman. So it's very much this death, resurrection, transformation theme. And that's what we thought we were doing. That was what we were trying to do. And that was kind of the, the, you know, the conceptual framework in which we were doing all this stuff. And one of the themes, you know, over the course of uh, this psychosis stretched over a couple of weeks and actually longer than that, actually the rest of our lives in some sense. But the idea was that, you know, you, in, in alchemy, you've got to condense the stone. Right there comes a point where you have to condense it. There is a mercurial stage where it's liquid; it's like mercury, and you have to fix the mercury into the stone. It's the final stage before you get the philosopher's stone. And so, a lot of what was going on at La Chirera was our attempts to predict when this stone was going to condense, and when we were going to essentially call it in. You know, call it in from outside, like calling a flying saucer in or calling, you know, visions in from outside, as shamans will do, you know, in in ayahuasca. That's very common that, you know, they will go out, they will go to the edge of the clearing, smoke some apacho, sing an icaro, and bring the visions literally in, you know, from outside. And suddenly everything is engulfed. 
and uh, this is what we were trying to do. And you know, the the the, the time wave and all these cycles that Terence uh, was fiddling with, that was obsessively fiddling with after a while, were really attempts to uh, predict when was this stone going to condense? When was this philosopher's stone going to condense? And, and when we did it at La Chirure, we thought, well, it would condense in a few days, you know, and then it became a few weeks, and then it became a few years. <laughs> you know, and then finally, you know, he predicted, okay, well, actually, based on time wave zero, which is a whole other thing we could talk about, you know, it's going to happen uh, in 2012. <laughs> And and you know about that, right? About time wave zero and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think I do. I know I know various theories on twenty twelve, and maybe it'll sound familiar if you uh, start to explain it. Well, he he's one of the meme creators about twenty twelve. It's it's not only the the Mayan calendar, although conveniently enough, the Mayan calendar also ends in twenty twelve. But uh, he talks about it in True Hallucinations. But if you want to. Uh, learn more about it. You can you can read uh, the Invisible Landscape, which is the first book we wrote on this whole thing. And the, and the Invisible Landscape, you know, presented itself as a you know as essentially a, as nonfiction, as an attempt for uh, our, our attempt to make sense out of all this crazy stuff. And uh, it's heavy sledding, but it's quite interesting. And and among the things he talks about in or that we talk about together in the invisible landscape is this this time wave that he constructed this mathematical uh, object uh, based on the I Ching, which is an ancient Chinese oracle. And uh, uh, you know, I mean, if out of uh, uh, you know La Chirera and all of these things, if there was actually an alien artifact that was created. This was it, probably. Mm. You know, it turns out to be a mathematical idea uh, about the structure of time. You know, and and how time is structured, and how you could actually predict uh, the end of time. Um, you know, if you could if you could analyze this mathematical wave in the right way. Now, I have to say, I in the years. Since I've sort of become, I've become very skeptical of the time wave idea. I mean, I think it's a very interesting idea, but I think there. Although he came to 2012 separately from the Maya. Yes, actually, he did. Huh. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I do remember this. Nancy Burns at UFO Magazine wanted me to to read all about it for a writing assignment, actually. So, so I guess. Guess this is the signal that I need to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, the invisible, the invisible landscape is the book, and uh, and now there's you know plenty of other writing about it. You know, everybody and their dog is weighed in on this. Huh. You know, uh, so there's lots out there. If you just Google time wave zero, all sorts of stuff will come up. Well, I think we're going to add the uh, invisible landscape to the uh, Paratopia Book Club, and. Um, yeah. So so can we uh can we convince you to uh to come back uh in some months uh, coming and uh and talk oh, some more sure. with us cuz sure. we're out of time. <laughs> yeah. 
No, uh, I'm I'm happy to to do that. Yeah, you know? great, great. Uh, yeah, no problem. Well, well, it's, it's been a very nice conversation. It's not every day you get to talk with people that are as crazy as you are. That's you right. So. <laughs> well, there you go. There it is. Uh, but uh, seriously, uh, uh, Dennis, we want to thank you so very much for coming on and uh, taking time out to talk with us uh, this evening, and it's been awesome as usual i'm so. happy to do it i hope you can get something coherent out of this <laughs> thank you sir it's been a pleasure gentlemen thank you sir so jeff was that your little dream come true interview was that everything that you had uh hoped and wished for <laughs> uh yeah but we still got a long way to go with that um i think we've got uh, probably a lot more to talk to him about a lot more to to explore and uh, and 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 I think uh, I think we got to do it. <laughs> I think we actually got to do it. Um, and you've said that to me before that you know there's really only way one way to to understand exactly what he's talking about because some of it is apparently yeah. indescribable. And I'm still skeptical that that it's um, the same thing being tapped uh it very well may be mm-hmm. or it may be kissing cousins of the same thing but but yeah there's really only one way to know and that's to do it yeah i guess we're, we're <laughs> exactly so uh you know if if you audience members would like to hear me and jeremy uh take a trip on mushrooms live yes. on the show Send your emails nothing, to <laughs> nothing like handling this with the uh utmost degree of of caution and uh, <laughs> and, and sincerity. <laughs> now I don't. Uh, that was a joke, folks. I don't think we'll be doing that. Um, oh, but we but, will. Uh, uh, I, I do. I, I yeah, but I don't think we'll be doing it on the air. Um, well, so. if I do it, if I do it, I will record as I go. I mean, if it's true that um, that you retain your sense of self and have your wits about you, then I see no reason to not be like Stardate. Six six four, Captain's Log, or whatever you know, and just go <laughs> right. along uh, well, until the mushroommen kill me. Well, maybe uh, maybe one of the board members or listeners can chime in on it, but I've got a uh, a friend of mine who has pretty significant experience with the mushroom, although he admits that he's not taken the um, the right dose to get the voice or the presence or whatever you want to call it that, uh, that the, both the McKenna brothers talk about. Um, and, and Terrence made it pretty clear that, you know, if you don't get certain effects with DMT or with the mushroom, you just didn't take enough. Uh, these guys weren't fooling around with piddly doses. These were, uh, high doses, uh, just like Strassman's, uh, DMT thing apparently were, pretty high doses to achieve that breakthrough experience. Uh, but a friend of mine said it, it is kind of weird because you're not, it's not constant. And maybe somebody on the board or a listener can confirm this for me, but he claims that it comes sort of in waves that you, you, you start out, you can feel it coming on. Now I don't know what that coming on feeling must feel like, but Apparently that's when you know a shadow on the wall can start flapping like a bird, and and you're okay with it. You know what it is. You know it's the mushroom doing this, um, uh, and that's what he saw. Was uh, you know he was in the bathroom taking a leak, and he looked up on the wall, and there was a shadow from some towels hanging, 
and apparently those sh- that shutter began to move. It began to wave like a bird. Um, uh, but he said that kind of comes and goes for a while, but it gets more pronounced every time you do it until you peak, he says, and then it starts to go down the other side of the mountain where the effects are less and less noticeable each wave that comes up. So, uh, I mean, I was pretty amazed to hear Dennis say that you can <laughs> sit in your room and if somebody rings the door like, Domino's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me get that. Hold on a minute. <laughs> and get up and answer the door and nobody's the wiser. I mean, I'm, I'm sure at some point you really don't want to move or don't get up or um, something like that. But when I mentioned that... Um, uh, to a friend of mine that you know who who like I said has had these experiences with this, he said, "Well, there is a point where you, you kind of almost got to keep yourself occupied or pay particular attention to the person you're talking to if you're in that kind of situation because your your mind is easily um, distracted into like if there's a picture on the wall, you'll start kind of like, oh yeah, I'll get that." You know, and meanwhile, the guy's talking to you about, you know, well, sir, that's eleven ninety five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, eleven ninety five, right? Uh huh. Huh. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, what was it again? <laughs> you know. So, I think that that would actually make me feel a little better, knowing that you get kind of a breather during all of that. Yeah. So. Uh, well, my, you know, my feeling on this is, um, he's saying there's a difference between ayahuasca, DMT mushrooms. I know there's a difference between normal wake state, meditative whatever state, um, thing opens in my spine, meditative state, Uh alien abduction type scenario, lucid dream scenario, regular dream scenario. I mean, so I have given all that. um, I have no reason to really think that these are going to be mirror images of, um, you know, where your head's at during an abduction. Uh Uh-huh. Um, however, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be, uh, opening something real or, uh, giving you, um, access to other dimensions, let's say, for right. a better term. Um, but I, you know, so I really want to find that out. And, and if it is something else, I mean, if I have the wits about me, I'd like to ask whatever this magical <laughs> intelligence is. Right. All about it, you know? All about alien abductions. Do you know anything about it? <laughs> Let me tell you what I think you'll hear when you ask that. Go ahead. You don't know shit, Jeremy. Um, that's <laughs> right. right, which that's, is why I'm asking, asshole. We'll be right. And I will have a heart attack, mysteriously. Right. You'll wonder what happened. Uh, what do you, let me ask you this. What do you think, being as you have the whole energy thing going on, what do you think its reaction might be to that? Um... I don't think anything unless unless I took the drug and or the mushroom or whatever and uh, and then went into that state. I mean that that would hmm. be something that I would try to do. Would be to you know immediately enter that and um, see what happens. You know, um, but I don't know. Have you? Um, I mean, you don't drink at all, right? No. Um. So really, the only you've you've never had the altered state of consciousness from any sort of no. The most drug was uh, when I was in the hospital with a bad back, and they put me on morphine. And did uh, it react to that at all? No, I mean I didn't. I mean it doesn't seem to react really to anything. I mean I um um I didn't go into any sort of meditation stuff while I was in the hospital. 
Okay. Uh, I was just on morphine, <laughs> and that, and that was great. <laughs> so it, it so it doesn't necessarily <laughs> so so it doesn't necessarily do anything outside of a meditative state. It you can't feel anything as reactionary to any stimulus outside of something. No, that you're... and then sometimes it tries to trigger itself, or sometimes it does. Um, you know, I'll wake up moving around and realize, oh, I'm asleep and this thing is working. Uh-huh. Um, or I'll just be sitting around, whatever, you know, hanging, you know, hanging out at a friend's place or something, and my hand will start moving, or my my head or something, you know, or standing waiting for the subway, and and it'll start trying to walk me somewhere, you know, that that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, you're one of those people. <laughs> uh, uh, I used to call cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean it, it's it it sounds like a very heady experience, but um, you know, like I said, I see a lot of really odd, similar things about it. Now, um, I, that doesn't mean that that's absolutely what it is, but it could be a a, a puzzle piece to it. Um, you know, I I I wonder um, if. I, I wonder if the uh, kind of like what I was saying in the interview, which is it's given me a new perspective kind of on the more you give, the more you get thing that I've been thinking about for a long time. Right. And and I do have to wonder if it's more along the lines of our thought is altering our perceptions at the time to be able to see things that all already there. Um and and manifestation comes next. See, that's the part that I'm having the problem with is, yeah, you're seeing these things in the psychedelic state, but why are they manifesting outside of that? You know, I mean, Terrence had his UFO sighting, and he says in his lecture, I wasn't loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was, it was up, I was up all night. I was in, insomniac. And, uh, you know, to his... He mentions that to his benefit, you know, somebody would say, well, you were loaded on mushrooms, so who knows uh, if you saw that or not. But he said the good part in his favor is that he is aware by direct experience of every known uh, hallucinogen, and he knows what those effects are because he's experienced them firsthand, and this was unlike anything he had ever experienced. So... You know, but he said, "Real? Who is to say?" Would you be disappointed if it turned out to only be superficially uh, the same, but actually not exactly what your abductions are, or you know, whatever word you want to use? Experience. Well, I'm hoping that it isn't. I'm hoping that if if it is the same intelligence, and I can discern that, and I hope that I if I can't discern that, that's what I'll be disappointed in. If it's still as ambiguous as this stuff is, that's when I would go, man, you know, uh, all that work of getting the courage up to actually do this, um, that's, that's, you know, that, that would be disappointing. If it were, if I could say, yeah, I think that that's definitely who they are, this is what it is, um, but it didn't act the same, it acted differently, then I would say, well, how much of that is the drug giving me, you know, mushroom balls to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. To to be able to, to handle it better. How much of that is that I'm just in an altered state with it, and I'm more comfortable in that, in that I brought this on. This is not something that walked into my room and shocked me. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that would be okay. I'd be okay with that. But if I do get to have this conversation, as Dr. McKenna talks about, with another, you know, I'm going to ask, what was the white square? Was that this? Was that, was that are you the intelligence that, that I've been seeing all my life? Are you part of this? And see what its answer is. Now, by the same token, can you believe it? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't believe a lot of what uh, the people in these experiences have told me. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, you know, a lot of the things that they've said. Uh, long time ago, I used to have a, a saying, you know, never trust an alien. Uh, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for in it. I know that there are many, many things that... Uh, that are very similar, that really couldn't be known unless you had an, a quote-unquote alien experience. So how are these people experiencing the same thing? Is it some kind of mechanism that's triggering something in everyone, that everyone has? And if that's the case, then that's still pretty interesting to me. Um, I mean, I've, I've always said that, you know, hey, if this is all in our heads, which I have very grave doubts that it's all in our heads, I mean again, multiple witnesses and people with you during experiences. So it's clearly not that. But years ago, I used to say, even if this is something that is all in our heads, if everybody's having the same experience, that is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And in DMT, it's repeatable. So, you know, that's that's another famous McKenna quote. You know, what we drug people that you UFO people don't have is repeatability. Um, and, And a lot of people report the white room with the the DMT beings singing these things into existence, the the babbly language, and you know, I mean, how would Reagan lead, you know, have seen and experienced the personality of these small fuzzy beings around her bed chatting at her in this gibberish, and she felt them to be friendly, but wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't turn their back her back on them. That's exactly what people are saying who've experienced a lot of DMT and have been to that place so many times that they build up a familiarity to it. Mm-hmm. They say the same things. They're like, they're like friendly, but they're almost like um, the one account that I read was uh, a woman compared them to um, uh, like uh, 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 stall market people in India where you say, no, I'm not going to buy that. It's too expensive. And they'll literally walk down the aisle behind you you know, wow, five cents, three cents, two cents, you know, and you think, how is this guy could potentially, this isn't a little scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the used car salesman <laughs> attitude that, that these things have. And, and they can also apparently be very uh, insistent. Um, uh, Terrence r- r- relates that as he went back time after time, uh, and became more and more familiar that the objects that they were singing into existence became more and more complex. And they were saying to him, do it, do it, do it. You know, and he would say, I don't know if I, don't know if I that's pretty, well, do it, do it. And they got really insistent. So there's that, there's that weird offsetness of they're nice and friendly, but I still wouldn't turn my back on them. But don't feed them after midnight. That's right. Don't feed them after midnight. So it's all that kind of stuff, and it's you know it's the way the voice is related 
you know, when when I had the conversation with Dennis on the phone, I mean, the way he was talking and just the the demeanor of the voice and the personality and all of that was like, you're talking like my my aliens. I mean, that's what they talk like. Their sardonic humor, their... Um, <laughs> They're, they're, you know, you really don't know what's going on, do you? And and then when you postulate something at them, it's, oh, are you sure? That kind of, it's just weird. I mean, that's what's got me really intrigued with this stuff. And uh, um, and ordinarily, I'd be the first guy to say, well, you're on drugs. But the more you read and the more you see the medical studies on this stuff, it's like there's something there. I just can't figure out exactly how it fits. How does it then manifest from a psychedelic experience into something that four people in a row can see? Yeah, and there are also weird, obvious, and, you know, talking about the shaman who uh, uh, they're torn apart and they're, you know, uh, they're, these beings place crystals inside of them and all that. I mean, if that's not your average abduction where they are implanted with something, I don't know what is. You know, so there's stuff like that <laughs> that, that is clearly, obviously similar and um yeah and and also um shit i lost my train of thought now ah, well the other thing <laughs> i mean there i mean i look at it from like the real obvious stuff like around white room what <laughs> softened lighting what <laughs> you know i mean it's just that's just weird and and uh uh and and when you think about how bizarre that experience is and how bizarre the alien abduction scenario is, not the one that is sold to the public, but the one that we've talked about, you know, for episodes now on this show, uh, you know, you've, you've got that bizarre nature. Now, of course, you're going to say, well, yeah, it's a psychedelic experience. It's going to be bizarre. Um, but, you know, when you start seeing things in it that are so damn similar... Right. It doesn't make sense not to study it and try and look into it further because what have we always said about this stuff? That the answer is probably far weirder and more uh, ridiculous than we can possibly ever conceive of. Mm-hmm. So this would be pretty weird that a you know that a plant you know can not only open your perception to see things that you can't normally see. Uh, and perception again is something we still don't know everything about. We don't know what it is. Uh, so how can we say that somebody seeing a hallucination is really hallucinating? We have to define what that means. Uh, but you've also got um, the the uh, I don't know the the whole the whole aspect of. Uh, um, now I lost my train of thought. See what you do? Sorry. Um, no. Um, I think the other thing that, um, uh, that, that I can't remember. Am I already, <laughs> am I, did I eat a mushroom on this episode? I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's just, it's got me really. I still I, can't I, remember what the other thing was I was thinking of. So I don't know. See how this works, and that's, you know, um, but it's but it's the whole idea to me that uh, you know these these shaman have to have a, an MAO inhibitor to make their their plant work, and what the hell do they know about that? I mean, trial and error. Why 
I mean, unless you're just eating one day because you're starving to death and you eat a couple of plants and this happens and then you say, well, it must have been that mushroom and then you eat the mushroom and that doesn't work and then you eat them both and you figure, oh, well, that must be it. Unless it was a stumble upon, which do you know how, how ridiculously against the odds that would be? Well, the ayahuasca is not the mushroom. I mean, what could have happened is they eat a magic mushroom and the mushroom people are like, hey, you know what? You want to visit somewhere else? Right. <laughs> go, go make this ayahuasca. Here's how yeah. you do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the plant... The plants told them what them to do. What to do. I mean, so, I mean, at that point, you got to wonder, um, and, and you know what, what kind of, when you hear stuff like that, there was something I wanted to bring up in the show that I forgot about, and that was a woman that I met really early on uh, in actually getting actively in, involved in studying people's cases and interviewing people and, and, and doing investigations here and there. I met this, this was probably the third or fourth person that I ever spoke to who had an alien experience. And she had had many, and uh, I was just looking for someone to talk to about the experience. And um, uh, I met this guy at a, a UFO conference in, in D.C., and he said, yeah, you really should, here's this woman's number, give her a call, she's super nice, she's super open, uh, and she's very... Uh, uh, coherent, literate, really smart girl. I said, okay. So I went and met her. She was probably girl. She was probably 50 uh, when I met her. And uh, her name was Laurie. And when I met her, she told me, equal to the bizarre and nature of the experiences that I've had, she was relating back to me. And I'm like, yes, that's it. That's What is this? And she said that the beings told her that they were spirits of the trees. Hmm. And I was like, huh, spirits of trees? And she says they are, She said they told me they were spirits of trees. Um, which you know, is weird because it's kind of, I don't know, kind of tandem to, you know, the mushroom told us, uh, right. you know, the, these kind of perked my ears up with that. I'm like, that's a little similar to that. So you've got these really weird connective things, and I'm not... All I can say is is that's it as far as a direction for me right now to, to study. I think I've been more enthused over this than anything that's come up in recent years. Mm-hmm. And of about the past 10, I've been fairly burned out on theories. I've, I've leaned more towards the... Um, I guess the the dimensional aspect of it more so than anything else. I think the ETH is ridiculous, but um, but I didn't know really where to go to study something like a dimensional or a perceptual angle of it. And maybe this is a possibility of a yeah of so a direction. You finish your book. We'll do the shrooms, mm-hmm. and we'll reconvene. We'll do a panel discussion with a whole bunch of surprise guests. Surprises to uh, not just our our listeners, but but us as well. Uh, yeah, because we don't know yeah. who would be on that panel. But <laughs> you know, well, like, I, I can yeah, uh, McKenna, I, if we can get yeah. Strieber and whoever else, um, have a little powwow. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that I can say about trying it is that we um, we have to find out what is the dosage you know what we don't want to piddle around i mean one pop and done 
And if that's the case, I want to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing because otherwise, you know, I don't want to be one of those people who says, oh, that's not right because, and then have somebody tell me, well, you didn't take enough, and then I got to do it again. Right. <laughs> you know, unless I like it. <laughs> well, we certainly got the means. We know the people who would know yeah. the answer to that. So Sure, sure, let's sure. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'm with you. Well, you know, Jeff, I'm really proud of you because um, this is our second real podcast for Paratopia, and it's the first one where you haven't, like, pressed any buttons with any stupid sound effects, quote-unquote, by accident. You mean like this one? Ah, 